Before the next episode of XJob Downloaded starts, I have a big favour to ask. If you've enjoyed any of our episodes so far, please can you click on the follow button on your platform. I'm on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon and YouTube. It costs nothing to follow, but makes a real difference to me as a podcast producer. Thank you. This interview has been tape recorded and today it's my intention to interview Simon Willett. We're on X Job Downloaded and I'm looking forward to this, Simon, because I don't think you realise what exciting things you've done. No, I'm looking forward to it too, Paul. It's a, a great pleasure to be able to do it and sit and answer questions unrehearsed, um, off the cuff. And um, exactly, I think those of us who served in the job... Um, we don't realise how qualified we are with our experience, our knowledge. Um, and, yeah, I think that's become apparent since I retired four and a half years ago. You do realise more when you've left, I think, when you've retired, um, just what great things you've done. Oh, yeah. Um, and things that perhaps you didn't realise were great, um, but nonetheless it's a skill that you acquire as an officer, as yeah. a serving officer. Absolutely, and the, the skills that you acquire – and we talk about this all the time, but your decision-making and your customer focus, it carries through life. And Simon, you're one of life's gentlemen, and I've known you for a long time, and I, and I mean that with all my heart because you are, you know, you're a nice guy. Although I wouldn't want to get on the wrong side of you, <laughs> but, but you, you know, you're a thoroughly nice guy. So what year did Cheers. you join the police? I joined September the 5th, 1988. Isn't it funny how we always remember the actual yeah. day? Yeah. September the 5th. It, yes, and... Um, it's funny how I joined, really, because it was never an intention. And if I, you know, if you'd like me to just briefly tell you yeah. how that came about, never an intention, never an aspiration. Um, but I have an agricultural background and uh, did an apprenticeship at Ernest Doe and Sons at Alting. Fantastic job, lovely people, still many of whom I see today. Um, then I was asked to go to somewhere else, which I did. And um, and then, it was then, in 1987, a friend of mine from Danbury, I'm a Danbury lad, a friend of mine, his cousin, who was also from Danbury, he, the cousin, um, met a lovely girl out in San Francisco where he was working at the time. Long story short, um, his cousin, who was still living in Danbury, and I were invited to the wedding. So I went to San Francisco with Paul and um, I'd never gone beyond a day trip to France prior to that. So when I talk about an adventure, it was absolutely mind-blowing. Um, great big opulent wedding. Mimi's parents were both successful lawyers in San Francisco, and that was reflected in this beautiful marble floor, a string quartet when we arrived. It was just something else. I'd never seen anything like it. And my abiding memory is when we landed in San Francisco uh, at night, and we saw this fantastic skyline, lights, these huge skyscrapers. It blew me away. So consequently, three weeks of that, um, and I came back and I was very unsettled. And a friend of mine who I was working with at the time, he'd applied for the job 
and he was successful and he joined just a wee bit before me. Um, but that was sufficient for me to say I need to do something else. So that's why I joined the job. I needed to do something radically different. And thank goodness, it, it, um, I'm a great believer in fate and that was meant to be. So and, that, and your friend joined Essex, please. He did, Roy Keyes, who was oh, on right, traffic, yeah, yeah. Um, a great chap, a very talented uh, mechanic, um, um, agricultural mechanic, very talented chap indeed. And, um, yeah, so the rest is history. Is that, are you an agricultural mechanic? Or is it- no, I was in the parts. I was in the stores. Oh, so okay. I did a City and Guilds qualification at Doe's. And, um, yeah, so. Yeah. Colin, Colin Doe, was he? Uh- yes, I know yeah, Colin yeah, yeah. Doe. I still see him. Very lovely man. He always looked after me. A yeah. great chap, a gentleman, a true I've, gentleman. I've met him a couple of times Have at you? cricket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very nice Nice point. chap, yeah. So you've joined Essex Police. Where did you go to first? Where was your first posting? I went to Colchester on shift, D shift, um, a fantastic shift. Um, again, who's there then? Who's, who's oh, the governor? Right, it was Dave Murthwaite. It was my first inspector. Yeah. Good chap. Um, and I can remember... Was Bully the skipper then? No, he'd just left then. He'd oh, left to go to drug, squad. drug squad. Exactly. Yeah. I missed I missed him just by not very long, I don't think. Um, but great times, as I suppose our formative years in the job should be. It Nothing but very brilliant. happy. It was brilliant. <laughs> it was absolutely fantastic. Um, but... You know, words of wisdom. I recall Dave Murthwaite. I went in one night to see him before I actually joined the shift. And um, words that have stayed with me since. And this is as true today as it has ever been. If somebody needs the police, they ring the police. There is no alternative, generally speaking. And he used the analogy, it's not like if you ring the AA when you're broken down on the side of the road, the AA give poor service, you can ring the RAC or a multitude of other organisations. The public don't have that option. There is no alternative. If you ring the police because somebody's breaking into your house, for example, and they get a poor response, there is no alternative. Absolutely right. And and that's stuck with me. Wise words, I believe. Yeah, I agree with you. He's funny because... I won't embarrass my brother, who, who you know, but we met, we'd known Dave Murthwaite for an awful long time. And um, he was a traffic motorcyclist and all that sort of stuff. And I passed out of Ashford on the Thursday. It was Maundy Thursday, 1987. And on the Saturday, we'd been to a family event and we're coming back from Chapel Heath and we go for a kebab at Istanbul Kebab. Oh, yeah. And these two fellas decided that they're going to have a fight in there, start smashing the place up. And I remembered, you know, criminal damage. I hadn't even walked the streets at that point. And these two boys, we end up, Glenn and I, we end up in a fight in the street outside the Istanbul (laughs) Delight. And Leo Sayer and Tony Allison, they turn up, handcuff me. (laughs) Oh, dear. Honestly, they handcuff me. And Dave Murthwaite, who we know, he turns up and he looks at me. And I vividly remember him. He's got his head in his hands st- sitting at a police car because I was a probationer. As yeah. it happens, I hadn't done anything wrong. These these boys had done it and they'd smashed it up and uh, and they owned a car place out at Birch and they were big friends with a detective sergeant who subsequently lost his job. Oh. Um, but, yeah, so it's, it's quite an interesting uh, dynamic because we're, we're talking about the same, same people. So do you know what I remember about Colston, Nick? The smell. Yes. The smell of the bleach where Alice the Cleaner had been in and out and um, – 
I remember that. I know exactly what you're talking about, and it's one of those things you talk about and it, it you can smell it again. Yeah, I know. The other thing that I can recall in the good old Nick, fantastic times, um, and I can recall when we were on nights uh, downstairs in the parade room and the control room and so on, and upstairs I remember there was a Narpo disco or some sort of function, <laughs> social function taking place, and the floor... You talk about the smell of the bleach and so on. I can hear the creaking of the floors oh as Lord. those good old retired officers and their friends Red and family. Shelley. Red Shelley, bless him. <laughs> Reg was most definitely there. <laughs> and the floor was creaking and you could hear the music. And I thought, my goodness me, good good on them. They're yeah. going to come through in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah it's, that old bar. I mean, the, and I know it was destroyed in later years, the sociability side, because of certain things, certain mm. skullduggery by a, a minority of people, but that was what built you as a as a as a team to to socialise with your peers. You knew who you could trust and rely on, and and I've used this before in other podcasts. Even if you didn't get on with people, if you turned out to a ten nine, which is an emergency for you know an officer's in danger, even people you didn't like would still turn out. Yeah. It was that. That was what a proper team was all about. Indeed. So you're at Colchester. You're in uniform. How long were you there for? I was there until early. Uh, sorry, um, December ninety two, um, which is when I went on CRD. So I remained on D shift um, uh, throughout that time. Um, with you know what it's like at a divisional station. People come and go. There was the mainstay there, but others were promoted, specialised. Probationers would come and join, but each and every one, great people. We were extremely fortunate. And as life progresses and your career progresses, it's fair to say not everybody you work with, and that's reflected in life, but not everybody you work with you get on with. But we were very fortunate that each and every one that joined the shift uh, to replace a good person that left one way or another, um, they they fitted the bill marvellously and, uh, yeah, great team. So did you move across to the new Nick in the interim before you went on CID? Yes. Uh, when I started, I think it was the 2nd of January, 89, I actually started at the um, the old police station in yep. Queen Street. And then I believe towards the end of that year, September, October time, I think that's when we all moved over moved to the over new to one. The- and, of course, that was brand spanking new. And we still call it the new Nick. We do, despite that. <laughs> despite you know, the fact yeah. it's 30 years yeah. ago, mate. Yeah. How do you feel about your age now? <laughs> Goodness <laughs> me, another reminder. What year were you that you joined? Um, uh, how old were you? I was 23. 23. Yeah, yeah I, was I was born 65, so 23. And, of course, as I mentioned earlier on, I'd done my apprenticeship um, and, and worked somewhere else for another three and a bit years. So, um, you know, I had a bit of life experience outside yeah, the yeah, job, yeah. which I, I think always served me well. And you had a good nickname as well, didn't you, mate? Did I? Yeah. Remind me, Paul. Was it cement mixer or something like that? Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah, that gullible Simon, naive, just getting the cement mixer. We, I promise I won't turn it oh, off. Anyway. And guess what happened? I think uh, I think that's... Uh, Hilarious. Yeah, bless them. What was the highlight of being in uniform? I think uh, wearing the uniform, actually, and as twee as that may sound, I actually... Uh, and this is so sincere, I can remember they were the days when, and I spent a stint on foot patrol, uh, which I enjoyed immensely, 
um, got to know lots of people, shopkeepers, yeah. um, doormen, um, bar people, and, and so it goes, and, and, of course, store detectives. But the one thing I remember, and I would do it every single time I could, and that was to wear my tunic. Oh, yeah. I found that, and, and that's an abiding memory going back all those years now, um, going to uniform stores, clothing stores at headquarters, getting measured up. And of all the uniform we had, the shiny buttons and the creases that you had to put in, I was immensely proud. And that's a word that's thrown around very liberally these days, but I was yeah. incredibly proud to be measured up and also to wear it. And um, not so much now, I'm sure. But at the time, you saw lots and lots of tourists in Colchester and they'd very often ask you to stand so they could take a photograph poster of you. Poster boy. So exactly. So, boy. so I think um, at that time I may well have adorned a few mantelpieces across Europe yeah, um, in my shiny button. So seriously, that was a great thing. I, I felt, you know, 10 feet tall to wear that. Yeah, and I, I was the same, mate. And I'd, <laughs> I couldn't even get the tunic over my bloody <laughs> over my right arm now. But <laughs> no, but, I... but but yeah, I mean, it is. It's interesting because I think that that pride, and I'm sure that there is still the pride in the job. It's just a different type of pride, you know. The day that mm. you joined and the day that I joined, there were people saying that the job had had it, you know, TJF, and and, and but they are people that joined in 1960, you know. The, so you joined in 50, uh, 88. Somebody would have done 30 years. They joined in 1958. You know, that that's the reality of this. And and we're looking at modern history. Mm. And the person, they joined in 58. If somebody joined 30 years before that, joined in 38, before the start of the Second World War. It, it, it is, uh, that does sit you up, doesn't it, when you say yeah, it? And, and the passing of 30 years, our respective careers and our colleagues out there hopefully listening to this, 30 years gone in a blink of an eye. Oh, and yet, yeah. as you say, 30 years prior to me joining, 58, the, the Second World War had only been over 13 years. And again, when you think about that, yeah. that's quite mind-blowing, isn't yeah, it? it is. Yeah, it um, is. Yeah, but I, I think you're absolutely right. I can think of old boys now um, who said exactly that. You know, we've had the best days. Oh, yeah. I think you and I can say we've had the best days, yeah. and I'm sure people in the, current, in the job currently will say the same. But perhaps. I think we did. I genuinely mm. believe that we yeah. did. And the reason I say that is because when my dad was in the job, a milkman would earn more than a police officer. Yes. We're now getting back to that time. We're now mm. getting to the time where, you know, new recruits joining up, they're on something like twenty two, twenty three thousand pounds a year. How on earth are they going to survive? And then there'll be questions in the house because a police officer has tried to, we call it mumping, don't we, where they've, they've yeah. tried to work a deal out for a, a portion of chips, or they can't afford to travel to work because of all these police stations that are being closed down. Where are they supposed to work? You've got major crime teams working out at Dunmo. You're not going to get any officers that are going to travel from from Clacton no. to Dunmo. And and um, I th I really believe we did have the halcyon days. Yeah, yeah. But it, it won't go back, mate. That's the, that's the no. Thing. I think we're you know we've crossed the Rubicon, um, the point of no return, and nothing will go back. I agree. Sadly, in many cases, I guess there are um, elements of the job these days that that are improvements. I, I don't know. Um, I think but, the IT element is good in some ways mm -hmm. and, and negative in the others because what it actually does, it keeps people off the street. Yes, yeah. 
There's no good giving them an iPad or a portal or something like that that they can they can work from in a car because it just means that people have got their heads down continually working on a pad instead of looking up to see what car's been stolen. Yeah. And as I say, I don't envy them the, the new role. And of course, you've got you know you've got family that are still in the police. That's right. Yeah, our youngest daughter is in the City of London Police, and I live the job through her now. And um, I must say, everything about the City of London Police that I hear. Um, is very, very positive indeed. Her colleagues, uh, friends, um, they are marvellous, really are. They really, truly do look out for each other, Um, very close-knit, very professional. Their uniform is very professional and um, uh, everything about them. And I just love to hear stories and anecdotes about what's going on these days and how things are dealt with. Yeah, fascinating. And I, I have to say the family family effects of the, the City of London Police, and this was reported this week, they've got a real concern about the welfare side and they've, they've got a great federation team there with Mike Reed and, and the other people there. But they've set up a food bank. Have they really? Yeah, they've set up a food bank because officers are having to travel. And then because what happens, you've got Sadiq Khan is going to introduce the the new ULES, which means that officers that work on nights or lates and they can't get home any other way, they have to drive their car into the new ULES area, which is going to cost them £12.50 a day, which is coming out of their – it makes my blood boil, Simon, if I'm really honest with you. But so we're we're now on CID at, at, at Colchester. What was the lowest point of being on uniform? How was how was that for you? I don't mean working Christmas Eve or Christmas night. No, no, we, we all sort of took that in our stride. I think the lowest point. Um, I don't know really. I honestly can't think now, and that's just leaping ahead to when I retired. There were things in thirty years, some pretty awful things uh, that happened to me personally. Some low points when I felt really bad really awful in fact but the point that i want to make at this point is when i retired it was like magic a switch went and all of those bad things uh were pushed to the back of my mind and all i had indeed all i have now are really good memories really happy very fond memories great colleagues incidents that we went to and so on um so really in truth going back during my uniform days, I honestly can't think of anything that I would describe as a low point. It was all very positive. So what was the inspiration to go on CID? I mean, we were both on the same CID courses yeah. and we, we had a laugh on there. We might touch on some of that later. Indeed, we did. Um, but what was the inspiration to go on to CID? I think the job itself presents so many opportunities. I would have liked to have been a dog handler without question. I would have, liked to, I would have loved to have gone on firearms, um, but you can't do everything. And um, being a detective was something that really fascinated me. Um, the um, Your task to sort of do what you can to investigate, take statements, find evidence to um, either implicate or indeed eliminate somebody. You know, that was the role. And I feel very strongly about that. Our role, the police role, is to find the truth. And that may mean that you have got the wrong man. Not very often, I don't think. But um, but equally, sometimes you could you have to be alive to the fact, well, yeah. this, this piece of evidence actually corroborates his version of events. It does happen. Fights, for example, where you've yeah. got six of one, half a dozen of the other. So I think it's important. Um, but it was that task of... Um, investigating, which really fascinated me. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, I'm going to go for that. 
And it opens another chapter, doesn't it? Because you actually have, you start to understand the access that you have to the experts. Yes, yes. And that and that really does. And what what you did do when we were young detectives, you worked off the experience of the older detectives who've been there and done it. And oh. they've seen no two jobs are the same. Everything's got a different side to it. But you needed your stalwarts in the CID office to to guide you at times. Hopefully yeah. you'd get the right – sometimes you had some grumpy old sods, you know. But, yeah. But, but, but um, yeah, that's that's what – that's what makes the difference around the CID. It, it does, and I found it fascinating. Again, I know I use that word a lot, but I genuinely did when you go up to the CID office, both in the old Nick and in the new police station, and there was a fog that you couldn't see from <laughs> what, and it wasn't, uh, you know, you just couldn't see. And it was, in truth, could be a bit daunting because some people, and, and in fairness, each and every one of those people, and there weren't many, but there were one or two that were a bit, bit grumpy. Yeah. But their bark, bark was worse than their bite. Yeah, but they were always um very helpful. Yeah. I found. And although they'd give you the the old wooden top line and so <laughs> yeah. on, more tongue in cheek I think than seriousness. But um but then uh you know they'd give you advice they'd help you sometimes. Um so yeah um some great people some people who I aspired to, others who I, I didn't, but um, some people left a, a really good impression on oh, me. Yeah, and, um, yeah, some really great people. And you worked on some interesting on some interesting jobs. But I remember, I think it was Graham Garnham. He had a burglary and and he was a dog handler. And you, yeah. I know you took that really personally and you identified who was responsible and they got locked up. But the atmosphere in a CID office was was. It was a club. I mean, whatever way we, yeah. whether we liked it or not. Yeah. And it was a club that worked. Indeed, it did. Yeah, well, most definitely. And it was a team game. And that's something that's very dear to me. I think the police is a team game yeah. without question. And calling it a game, I'm not underestimating. It's a very serious um, job to do. And, and the, the um, uh, what you're dealing with is very serious. And it is certainly to the victims, but it was. You couldn't achieve anything without you being part of a team and people playing their role, pulling together and not being frightened to pipe up and say, well, I think I've got a better idea or or, or whatever, but um, having the courage, really. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think if you're one person in amongst people, certainly if you've got a serious investigation and you've got the detective superintendent, there's SIO, other higher ranking officers in there, and you're a lonely DC or DS or whatever, and um, actually putting your hand up and say, excuse me, sir, I think that's courageous, frankly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's not always easy, um, but I respect those that do. But most, most senior investigating officers will say there's no such thing as a bad idea. Whilst you might sit there and I I think that's around the people sitting around you. You think, oh, I don't want to look a bit of a wally in front of them as much as anything else. But the fact is, if you've got an idea, you, you share it. Mm. And like you say, we had some we had some great leaders, mm. and they were proper they were proper leaders. I liked the sociability side of it. I didn't agree yes. with everything that went on, but I did like the sociability side and the fog. You know, we had one old boy who'd sit there and smoke his pipe, yeah. despite the fact that I'd <laughs> soak his tobacco in whatever I could. <laughs> Um, we had another one who at one of the DIs would come in and nick your sandwiches. So, um, Ian Bauer decided that he was going to fill his, fill his sandwiches up with cat food. So the <laughs> so the DI came in, took a bite out of his sandwich, and he's having a bite of cat. You know, but that was that was a, a laugh. 
What sort of, sort of stuff did you investigate on on CID at Colchester? Um, well, when I first went on ninety two, um, it was it predated um, MITs, the major investigation team. Yeah. So uh, the, any any incident in your um, area um, would fall to CID. So murders, um, rapes, serious assaults, burglaries, dwelling burglaries, um, arson, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, so just about anything really, Paul. But don't you think that, I mean, now there's a, there's a massive um, swathe trying to get people to go to burglaries because it's the most invasive crime that a normal person will, will, will contend with. You know, day-to-day, um, if, if you sat in a room Everyone will know someone has been done for speeding if they haven't been done for speeding themselves. Yeah. Everyone will know someone has been the victim of burglary. People won't know who's been the victim of sexual assault because it's not something that's spoken about. No. And the same goes with murder. So it's that end of the market that's quite busy, isn't it? It's that it is actually, you know, if you've been the victim of a dwelling burglary, it's so invasive. Somebody going through your house through your personal belongings and stealing things that are irreplaceable. Yes. That watch that your father left you, the ring that your grandmother left you, all those types of yeah. things that go. And I think it's a, it's a, I think it's an injustice to the victims now that the police don't attend every burglary. I can't I can't believe that we're even discussing the fact that we got to a point where but what you know what what are your views around that? Well, I, I wholeheartedly agree. I think any sane person, let alone police officer serving or otherwise, um, it is. It's a violation, isn't it, of your home, of your space, of your, um, you know, an Englishman's home is his castle, and that's a very true saying as far as I'm concerned. And to, yeah, rifle through your belongings and the, the thought that there's this uninvited guest, to say the least, has <coughs> broken in. Um, and coincidentally, I heard yesterday, I watched something on YouTube, and there was a, a retired... Assistant Commissioner from the Met, Helen King, and she was talking on um, Sky News, I believe, with Sophie Ridge. Um, The statistic that she gave, I found startling. 80% of incidents that officers attend now do not relate to a crime. 80%. And even even Sophie Ridge, she not queried it, but she said, my goodness, that's a huge that's a huge, that's a huge percentage, isn't it? 80% because the police are required to do all sorts of other things now. Um, so, yeah, whilst they're dealing with 80% of matters that are not crimes, then amongst that are your burglary victims. But they've become professional social workers, haven't they? They are, the, they are now the people that have always done safeguarding. Of course they have, and you only have to look at – um, the way that life has developed. When we were kids, you had um, mental health units where people were insecure mental health yeah. units. What do they do? They close them down, they move them all out to Clacton, for instance. Yes. Somebody has to look after these people and give them the appropriate support, and it always falls to the police. Yes. Wrongly. Yes. The problem you've got is that the police have gone from a 365-day 24 hour, you know, 365 days a year, 24 hour service, and they've gone down to a nine to five. So they're making it, making themselves less accessible. So there's a conflict between them and the other authorities. And I, I as I say, I do feel for the modern police. Yes. When you when you look back at those halcyon days, what 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 jobs actually stick out in your mind? What, 
Well, one, and I was talking to a friend about this the other day, um, it's not the, on the face of it, it's not the most serious, but when I explain briefly, um, people I'm sure will understand it was despicable. And uh, I had two lads in for some dwelling burglaries and then I think they'd um, guessed that they were each sort of implicating each other. Um, And during the course of the interviews, one told me, um, that the other was responsible for stealing some toys off a uh, two children's grave. Now, oh. these two little tiny children were, they died in a house fire in Wimpole Road in Colchester. I beg your pardon, Brook Street in Colchester. And naturally, that was a horrendous thing to happen. Heart-wrenching indeed. And um, so these poor little children perished in a house fire. They were uh, buried up at Colchester Crematorium. And one of the lads I had in had apparently uh, was responsible for stealing these toys. And I, even now thinking about it, as I say, people will understand, I'm sure, in the grand scheme of things, not the most serious thing per se, but what a despicable thing to do. It's up there, isn't it? And uh, I was absolutely determined. Anyway, long story short, I, I interviewed him and eventually he uh, he admitted it. Um, and that gave me huge satisfaction just to know that that um, I'd interviewed him and he'd, he'd admitted doing that. The sad thing was, as you'd expect, on the front of the Evening Gazette, the Colchester Gazette, um, there was a great big spread about the fire and these two little poor little children. But I was glad to give the press a briefing that this lad had admitted it, and there was a postage size, mm-hmm. postage stamp size um, piece in the, the the Gazette the next day. I, I guess that's you know to be expected. But I was, if I'm frank with you, I was a bit disappointed. Yeah, I thought it perhaps would attract more, um, but that was satisfying. Yeah, that is. I mean, that is heart wrenching, isn't it? It is. That was an awful thing. You, I, we alluded it to, to earlier on, but you and I, we did our two CID courses together, didn't we? Yes. We went to Birmingham for yes. ten weeks, cool. and that was uh, that was. Um, <laughs> I put on more weight there than I've ever done in my life. <laughs> I came back a lot poorer, um, <laughs> and I found that Guinness was my drink of choice. And it didn't matter what time we turned up at Tally Ho, there was always somebody partying, wasn't there? I mean, that was there a. Was. I mean, that was hard because we had young families, didn't yes, we? Yes, we did. So we were travelling from Essex to um, to Birmingham, but I have got some great memories of that. Mm. And uh, but the, obviously the the one that we did our CID selection course together. I mean, you can tell the story in whatever way you want to tell it, Simon. But well, it's um it's funny now, but it wasn't funny at the time, was it? It was extremely unfunny at the time, and in essence, the three week course. Was it three weeks? Yeah, I, think I think it was, it was. three yeah. weeks at headquarters. Great bunch, and it was pretty innocuous, to be honest with you. Very enjoyable. Learned an awful lot. We were young and keen, as we ought to have been. And then on the last night, so the Thursday evening of the third week, uh, we all went out to the Fox and Raven, I believe, and um, you sought permission <laughs> to get some beers and take them back, which... We did, and then things, uh, events overtook, and ended up with one of the, one of the the chaps who was an older bloke um, on our CID course doing all sorts of things he ought not to have done, um, involving a snooker 
ball and um, a bottle of lemonade. lemonade yeah. And, um, you know, that affected somebody who was on a sergeant's course who, as far as I'm aware, was looking at um, a really distinguished career yeah, ahead yeah, of him. He He'd been sort of headhunted, I believe, for bigger and better things. Alas, not to be, because the long and the short of it was, inevitably, it came to the attention of uh, senior officers, thorough investigation, and they both got sacked. Sacked. Yeah, they did. And um, I can recall being the first witness Oh, Fortunately, yeah. none of us gave evidence because both uh, the chaps involved pleaded guilty. But I can recall when they came in and said, right, PC Willett, you're the first to give evidence. Yeah. Consequently, sitting in the room and the creaky door, every time that door creaked open, I anticipated they're going to call me name to, to give evidence. In the Chief Constable's waiting room. That's right. Yeah. And the Chief Inspector then, with these marvellous uniforms on, I alluded to earlier on, really smart, shiny shoes, really formal, as indeed it yeah. should be. Um, and, uh, yeah, lunchtime came and that Chief Inspector said, you, you're all... You can all stand down okay. because they've pleaded. But I recall, Paul, um, not long after that, you know, an hour or so after that, we were informed that they'd both been sacked. sacked yeah. And it's a strong word, but I can recall, although I think we all knew that that was certainly on the cards, but I can recall that being a really big shock. Police officers being sacked. Yeah. It is a big thing. Yes, we yes. hear it every day now, um, unfortunately, but... Um, and, and it was the right thing. Of course, they should have been sacked. But my goodness me, to hear that in the context of being at, in the Chief Constable's building and with uh, senior officers flying around, yeah, terrifying, actually. Yeah, and I always remember that the, the um, Terry Gardner and um, Janet Adcock um, sitting in the in the, the office at, at Whitsum and I get called up and he's, they said, uh, compliments to Mr Markham. Here's your options. You give a statement or we're going to suspend you. It, there was no no niceties about no. it. And I also have vivid memories of the night after the event, and I've got to take a, an element of blame here because I took 10 quid off everybody and went and got booze. And we, we sat in we sat in there and, you know, it was the downfall of a number of people's careers as a direct result of, of that party, but that's the way it is well it is the way it is and and i know what you mean and that's why i said a minute ago uh, that it was terrifying because i thought uh, i'd done absolutely nothing wrong um as most of us had not we simply were there yeah we were we, present yeah, absolutely and and this present. and and this happened uh, in seconds it sounds awful when you go through the grim details which i don't intend to do but um in in reality it took seconds however we're all responsible for our actions, yeah, aren't absolutely. we? And you and I didn't do it. In fact, the vast majority, other than two people, um, all behave themselves. And yeah. um, that's how it is. we should be accountable for yeah, what absolutely. we do. And um, although there was a, a bit of sympathy for them at their fate, in other words, being sacked, yeah. um, their pensions, their wages and so on, um, their reputations, which is important mm. to people, it is to me. Um, so that went as a consequence of a few minutes or a few seconds, seconds of um, stupidity. ridiculous behaviour, yeah. Yeah, and it was, you're absolutely right, but I mean, they, they even got to a point where they'd seen the crime, fingerprinting the snooker balls, and mm. I mean, it was it was a bizarre sort of feeling to be 
part and parcel of that. It was. It was. We did our 10 weeks at, uh, at Birmingham. Mm. And as I say, that was, it was a blast. But as a young parent with young children, that was quite hard because Birmingham's not just the part. I wouldn't swap it for all the tea in China because it was, it was one of life's experiences. And I suppose our wives got on with being single parents for, for 10 weeks. We were on the last CID course that lasted for 10 weeks. We were the last 10-weeker, and it was a, a great course. Um, in fact, my son, our son, was born whilst we were there. We were there yes. October to December, weren't yeah. we? And uh, our son, our middle child, was was born whilst we were there. So my wife truly was a single parent, yeah. exactly. So he was our second child, and um, my wife, bless her, just cracked on just remarkably, really. Um, yeah, and because it, it's all moved in house, and there's no residential courses now, and and so on and so forth, so that that element has changed. And we did, I mean, we ate well, we drank well, we had such a, I mean, it was it was an absolute hoop. So after we've done our CRD courses, you've come back, I've come back. You're on CRD at Colchester. Where do you go to from there, Simon? Uh, I was promoted then in April, April '94. I got my ticket, um, but I waited a year. Um, and then I was posted back on uniform to Brentwood. Again, I was very fortunate. Went to a great shift, a shift, great people, and great um, place to work as well. Great place to work. I thought so. Um, really good. The Met just next door, just yep. the other side of the M25. So consequently, our paths crossed quite a bit. Yeah. There were often Met officers um, at Brentwood. Uh, met some really great people um, as a consequence of that. So yeah, it was really good. I, what I liked about Brentwood was that it was um, they wanted their police service there. They really and they were very yeah. supportive. Forget yeah. all the Towie stuff and everything else. Very very supportive. The local council and they're still. I know they're still very supportive. But what a great shame that police station has gone. It's been knocked down. It's now residential premises. The sale of those police stations was to pay for a new police headquarters. Was it? Yeah, and what happened to that? Every police station I've worked in, you know, within the, the subdivisional stations, they've all closed, um, Braintree being the exception. And, yeah, it's, it's a great shame. But you saw some interesting people whilst you were in Brentwood. You, you bumped into some very interesting people. Yes, I mean, there are plenty of celebrities there. I saw people, I saw Fatima Whitbread. She, at the time, lived in the house called Javel Inn. Um, no. Whether she still lives there. Um, Graham Gooch, I believe. Um, Ross Kemp, used to see him all the time. And um, the the best thing, and I was, I admit to being a bit starstruck, was dear old Frank Bruno. Yeah. I think, you know, we all loved and continue to love Frank and and especially now we know that his um mental health is is um has suffered a lot yeah. over the years bless him and um a great great man um very well loved chap and a, and a fantastic boxer but I saw Frank um, and I was out in Stonda Massey where he lived at the time in a little panda car, I believe. And uh, anyway, he came the other way, FRB1. And I saw him and I turned around and he stopped in the petrol station and I had to call in. Oh, good for you. And he put his hand up, hello, officer. And I said, hello, Frank. And my heart was right. I know that sounds a bit silly, but what a great man and a, a fantastic boxer, a great athlete. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and the sporting was, ambassador. Oh, indeed. What a great chap. 
yeah, lovely man. I wish him well. Um, yeah. yeah, good man. He had the Hearns living out there. and Oh, really? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was, I mean, I, I remember getting the train from there one day and Steve Davis is on the train. Oh, yeah, yes. Yeah, it was, it, was it was a great It was a great place to work. And yeah. You never knew you were going to get a phone call from. I'm no. not going to name the individual, but there was a robbery in, in Brentwood and the, um, the CEO, so the officer arrests the first person they see that fits the description of the suspect. He gets taken into custody. The next thing, a phone call comes into the office and it's um, a senior, um, a well-known TV personality, or will not name, and he said, I need to speak to whoever's in charge. And I said, well, the chief inspector's upstairs. So I phoned the chief inspector. You need to speak to this man. He phones up and says, you have arrested my um, chief financial officer. Who fitted this description of this robber from a from a uh, from a bookmaker's? Good grief! And um, he basically said, "Look, you come and do my job, and I'll come and do yours because you clearly can't do yours, or your officer can't do." It. And we we brushed this person down and sent them off into the sunset. And I'll tell you about who it was off off air. But wow. yeah, I mean, we did. We had some we had some great people, and there were you know, there's a, there's a few quid around Brentwood as well. There is, yeah, it's a very opulent area. Um, you know, Hutton Mount, I've been to burglaries there and, and incidents there, and I recall a, um, a lounge there. Um, it was as long as your garden here, Paul. I mean, it was enormous. Yeah. I mean, very impressive. Very, very yeah. impressive indeed. Yes, yeah, certainly there's some money there, that's a lot for of sure. footballers and, and yeah. whatever. You'd often see the lovely Sir Trevor Brook in driving through the town. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it is a great place to work. Yeah. So how long were you there? I was there a year. Okay. Uh, I was there a year. And then I went on uh, major investigation, uh, up Apache, and um, and then whilst I was on that, I was on that for about a year, and then um, an advert came out for a DS on the child abuse investigation unit, and so I put in for that and was successful, and I went to Colchester then. And Apache was a, a to do with the corruption um, following the murders of the Retterton. Yes, boys, that was. Um... That's it. That that investigation, which is um, interesting, because I was on the other side. Not that I was corrupt, but I was obviously, I was, yeah. And we were mates, so that made yes. you know. But I didn't know what you were doing, and and that was um, who knew that what those scoundrels were doing in the in the back office. Well, that's the thing, and I think as we get older, I'm I'm lucky. I'll be fifty eight the end of next month, hopefully. Um, but as we get older, we acquire wisdom. And one of those things is to keep an open mind. And, yeah, um, absolutely. you know, when you see people come in and, and, and I experienced it and I was big enough and ugly enough to, to, to sort of take it on the chin, so to speak, but lips curled, people turn their noses up at us, but we were doing a job. We yeah, were absolutely. selected or applied in some cases yeah. perhaps, but we were doing a job. So what I'm saying is you see somebody and it's easy to turn your nose up at them, but they're just doing a job like we did in our everyday yeah. job and you see some members of the public, but you think we're, we're just doing what we're paid to do to get to the truth, as yeah. I mentioned earlier yeah. on, and that was what it was about. And to put it into context, what we had is we had a man called Darren Nichols who was um, – a police informant who drove two people to a, a murder site where three people were killed in a Range Rover. That's not a you know that's not to be ignored. And then it's identified that the police handlers are allegedly involved in in forms of corruption. So it has to be investigated because the police are not above reproach. They need to be 
investigated and dealt with properly. And that's exactly what you guys did. And and a lot of my friends worked on that inquiry. Little mm. did I know because they were very discreet around the way that they carried out their business. Mm. So you then went on to child abuse investigations. Child abuse investigations, which several people had said that's, a, you know, a, um, an interesting job, a tough job, like most things are um, in the police. And, um, yeah, and I remained there for 16 years, both at Colchester and at Chelmsford. I worked with some fantastic people there, um, some really outstanding people, detectives, social workers as well. Yeah. Um, you know, we worked uh, multi-agency, social workers, health visitors and, and various other people, paediatricians, um, great people that, you know, really got stuck in and uh, played their part in the multi-agency approach into these investigations, yeah. And, and years ago it was called the... Was it community services branch? It was it? years and years ago, which was completely different to yeah. what what it's transpired to now. Because it's absolutely, you know, it's vital that children are protected from yes. predators, and the work of the child, you know, child protection team, child abuse investigations, whatever they're called, is so so important because it's those formative years where those children need the support. And the offenders need to be locked up. But how did that affect you mentally? Because you're dealing with some very, very unpleasant individuals. Yeah, I mean, uh, people have asked me that over the years, Paul, and said, how do you deal with it? And it's a very poor answer, frankly. Um, I just could. I don't know how, but I just could. And I think it's one of those things, either you can or you can't. And I think if you can't, perhaps it's best not to pursue it any further and admit defeat. And there's no shame in that whatsoever but I was able to despite having a young family myself at the time when I first went on there in 97 um and yeah you do you you and and again sometimes it's not the most serious incidents I remember a dear little girl for example um Holland on sea she was in foster care as she'd been smacked by one of her parents her mother I believe and she was the most delightful little girl, and she had a perfect handprint on her face. Now, again, of course it's serious, but in the grand scheme of things, there are more serious injuries. But that dear little girl, um, and I, that one that I thought, crikey, um, I felt really bad. She was bright and bubbly yeah. and polite and, and lovely. So, um, But, of course, there are uh, other things far, far more serious. And, and going back on that, I think that sometimes as a parent, and I'm not saying that it's right, but you can see why parents actually do break, you know, because we're yes. not living their lives. We're not worrying about – we're worrying about our own mortgages being paid. We're worried about yeah. our own food being put on the table. Yeah. We're not there when when a parent does smack their child. And I'm not an advocate of smacking um, per se, but, you know, it is – it's a very – difficult subject but your predatory sex offenders those that have sexually abused victims they really do need locking up and locking up for an awful long time they do they do you're right but you know just to illustrate what you said i went to a a job in colchester and there was um, an allegation that a young lad I don't know, eight, nine, I think, (coughs) that he had a cigarette burn. And in my experience, 16 years on that department, cigarette burns, mercifully, were very rare. Yeah. And anyway, I went to this house and this little lad had a bit of a scuff mark on his arm. And his dad was there and I, I was conscious that his dad was watching me 
as I watched this lad that had ADHD. Right. And he was like the wall of death rider. He was running round the house or around the front room like something possessed this little lad, had so much energy. And the dad was smoking a cigarette. And it, before my very eyes, the lad jumped over the sofa, down and brushed his dad's cigarette. And I saw exactly, it was never a deliberate cigarette no. burn. Uh, that's the, the short version of that story. And this chap looked at me and I could read his mind. And I think what he was saying in his mind was, how on earth would you cope with this little oh, lad? No. And and I, for what it's worth, my he had my utmost sympathy because he was a handful, lovely little lad. But yeah, my goodness me, the ADHD meant that he was running round like a yeah, yeah. And, and like I say, we don't we don't live these people's lives. It's, no, but, but when you have the opportunity to witness it firsthand, because everything's gone online, I think some of those those things are lost. But it's right that teachers medical practitioners, the police service, everybody reports these matters in. Yeah. Because the next thing you know, there's going to be an incident. And, you know, I've got I've got a really dear friend who's concerned about their next-door neighbour and said that they thought one of the children was being physically abused, not sexually, but yeah. beaten. What do we do? And I said, you've got to report it. And they said, but if I report it, then, and I'm wrong, then the fact is that I've I've interfered. And I said, yeah, but if you're not wrong, if in six months' time that child ends up in a mortuary and a post-mortem's being carried out because it's been abused by its father, yeah. how would you feel then? And they said, no, you're right. So they used Crime Stoppers, which is a fantastic organisation, should be used more often. Yes. Um, because you can report everything anonymously and that's what they did and they got a visit and social, you know, we know that social care went round there and, and did their stuff. So if that's prevented that child from being the victim of crime, then that's absolutely brilliant. Well, it is. And, and to endorse that, I recall I mentioned earlier on before we started here that uh, the training, multi-agency training, which I used to enjoy very much. But one of the things then, bearing in mind this was a long time ago, was... Jamie Bolger. Yes. And th those poor people who had seen Jamie go, and they were suspicious. Obviously, they didn't know what was going to befall that poor little boy, but uh, those people, it, it haunts them, I'm sure, until yeah. this day. So the message there was don't do nothing, do something. It's not always easy. I fully appreciate that yeah. for the reasons you've mentioned. But, um, yeah, don't sit and let things happen. And, and nobody's going to be offended. Jamie Bolger was um, abducted by two two boys, mm. taken and murdered. In fact, I think we were in Birmingham at that time. You're right, we were. And yeah, that was a hot topic. And But you're talking 30 years ago now, mate. That's right. That's 30 right. years ago. Yeah. And, I think that you've, if you've got that public service in your body, you're not you're not frightened to stand up and say that's wrong, and and if you, you're doing the right thing. But there's a lot of people that won't do that because they don't want to interfere, but they have to interfere. Yeah, they have to say something, even if it's anonymously. They have to say something. Yeah. What um, what motivated you to move away from child the child protection element? I um. After 16 years, it wasn't necessarily the nature of the work, but um, internal wranglings. I mean, it was just um, uh, the way some things were going. 
and I thought I really need a change in direction. Yeah. And I remember I was um, scrolling through the pinks as we knew them, the personnel bulletins, yeah. which contained, amongst other things, job adverti- uh, advertisements. And when I looked, I saw Detective Chief Inspector Special Branch, and I thought, oh, if only there was a DS's job. Scrolled a little further, DI. If only there was a DS, and lo and behold, beneath that, Detective Sergeant Special Branch stands to the airport, and I applied, and the rest is history. So my last five and a half years, I was successful in that interview, and my last five and a half years' service I spent as a DS on Team 2 at Stansted Airport, and it was the most fantastic job. It was incredible, and I've said it throughout, um, but I really was so fortunate. The team that I inherited were the business. Each and every one, they were so loyal, hardworking, uh, used their initiative. I, I could go on all day. Um, nothing but praise for all But that them. makes your job a lot easier when they're it like that. It made my job so much easier. So everybody knows what child abuse investigation do, That you know, but what does special branch – I mean, there's a lot of police officers won't know what special branch well, actually do. No, that's right. I mean, uh, in essence, it is uh, an intelligence uh, role, um, multi-agency again, like so many other roles in the police. Um, we used to work with other police forces, a lot with SO15, the Mets Counterterrorism Command, MI5, MI6, uh, the military. And, um, yeah, um, in short, it was all about gathering intelligence and, um, yeah, a fascinating job. And some of the people that you work with and their backgrounds, as much as they enlighten you or or able to enlighten you, just absolutely incredible. Yeah, and they are proper James Bond, some of them, aren't they? Indeed they are. I think people don't realise that the amount of data that is collected through travel Yes. Through, you know, and, and years ago it was the Irish flights coming in and out of um, yeah. of Ireland. Braintree is well known for being a, a, an Irish um, enclave, if you like. If, mm. if people got off the plane, there was lots of engineering companies, civil engineering companies that come and work here. And a lot of, there was a lot of monitoring, which they, you know, that was a posh way of saying they were keeping an eye on people so they could see how many times, well, because technology's moved in to the, to the travel space. So it's easier to monitor people. But you never see the end of the job, do you? You never No. That's right. And and it's an old cliche now, but it is genuinely a need to know job. Exactly. Yeah. And and you wouldn't ever dream of asking, Oh, what happened to that chap or those people or whatever? Um, because you know, but I always found it very rewarding that you knew in some way that you and the team had contributed to their end game. Yeah, and absolutely. you just provide them with whatever you can provide them with and, yeah. and let it but but often because I found them, generally speaking, them being MI five, that they were quintessentially English. English. Yeah. Very, very and when you received uh, correspondence from them, you know, it'd be um I wonder whether you would mind cons- or whether you would consider exercising you you know, yeah. I love very polite yeah, and yeah. um and great people. But um often because they're very polite you would receive an update to say what you did on monday morning was extremely useful thanks very much words to that effect so you know whilst it wasn't detailed and i never expected it would be it's nice it's courteous 
and and you know that what you've done is appreciated and indeed useful to yeah. them. So that was good. And I think that a lot of it, a lot of things are lost around the fact that we have our homegrown suspects. Mm. They they don't all come from the Far East, Middle East, you know, from no. Chechnya, wherever it may be. We've got people that live in this country that are subversives and would like to undermine the government. And and yeah. they're the, but they're the same people that will be going to Torremolinos or, or yeah. and yeah. so it's it's a it's a really, really vital and important role. And as a dear friend of ours once said, you don't see the Russians rolling up through Brightlessy High Street, do you? No, no. He, he caveats me with that. I've done my job. You never see the Russians rolling up Brightlessy <laughs> High Street. Um, but no, that that's fascinating. When you retired, how did you feel? I felt, um, I, I guess, some relief um, because the pressure of the job, not just for me, for everybody it is a tough job. I think people underestimate that the, the pressures that are on you, um, not just physical pressure, um, dealing with a great big muscly chap, um, but time scales um, and pressure that you might have done something wrong, not intentionally, but that, that your uh, mistake might cost. Uh, something at court, you know, there is a pressure, an awful lot. I think life in general these days is yeah, very pressurised. Right. I mean, little children, for example, as I understand it, have homework when they're about five or six. And, you know, so pressure is poured on us from an early age or poured on those youngsters from an early age. Um, but immensely grateful that I've been able to do it. Again, I hope that doesn't sound twee or, or, or anything, but it was a great thing. And I look back now, I could talk all day and every day um, about the things that I was able to do in the job, the people I've met, colleagues, yeah, some criminals. Um, fascinating. They are fascinating people. I mean, I think that's evidenced by you go into any library, and I'm an avid reader, but you go into any library now and see the true crime section, that's enough to let you know that uh, people, generally the public, are fascinated by crime yeah. and criminals, and there are some fascinating stories to be told and to be listened to. Yeah, and that's what we, you know, this is part of what we what we do and why we do it because people are interested in people and they're interested in what we did. Yeah, when you when you walked out of that door, I mean, for me, it was that was I was sad. Yeah. Because I gave back that warrant card, there was elation because I was getting my pension. You know that was, yeah. um, but immense pride about what we did. But yeah. you don't take away those. You can't walk away without having those memories. The goods far outweigh the bad. Yeah. What was the most horrendous horrendous job that you worked on, other than you know like the police corruption element? What was the most horrendous job that you had to work on? I think anything over the years where there's um, death. Because death affects people, obviously. But where, uh, you know, sudden deaths, uh, the death of a child, um, uh, whether it be um, a murder of a child or whether the last few years on the child abuse team, the government had introduced the child death review, which meant that the police, and principally the DS in an office, would uh, attend deaths of a child, mm. a child being somebody under the age of 18. So even non-suspicious um, deaths. And generally speaking, the DS would go out to the scene with a consultant paediatrician. Yeah. So you'd face these people 
um, these bereaved parents. And I can hear one in particular where I could hear as I and the paediatrician walked up the pathway on New Year's Eve and I can hear that poor mum screaming now, wailing. Yeah. Um, because uh, their two-year-old daughter had died earlier that day and um, horrendous really. And another one in Dovercourt and a little boy died in a house fire. His mum had uh, met with a friend of hers who'd just come out of prison and left this little boy home alone. She'd nipped across the road and he'd played with matches. The house went up and he died. And And he was exactly the same age as our son was at the time. So that was a particularly mm. poignant one. Um, but I went on to interview the mother, who was a tough lady, well known to the police, tattooed, really tough lady. But I interviewed her for, I think, three and a half, four hours at Harwich Police Station. And even now, it's sort of quite moving, bearing in mind her predicament. And um, she was interviewed in relation to an allegation of neglect of a child, leaving him at home alone. And the last question, as with all interviews, um, is there anything you would like to say? And she said, yes, thank you for treating me like a human being. And I found that even now, that was 98. So even now, that was a a magnanimous thing for her to say to me. Yeah. And uh, But that's the nice person you make because you didn't judge her for what? No, no. As hard as it is, you didn't judge her for the person that she was at that because she's lived that life of regret now. Indeed. And so that your listeners know this Crown Prosecution Service decided to take no further action on the basis that it wasn't in the public interest, as you quite rightly say, in my view, what other punishment would fit where she's allowed her son to die in in the most horrendous circumstances. Mm. So, yeah, but it was, um, well, I'm talking about it now, and uh, I thought that was rather, um, well, huge of her to say that. But it just shows, and and if we don't get anything else out to people, whatever people may think of the police service, we are human. We're fathers. We're grandfathers. Mm. We've got we've got that human element, and I think that some of that is the portrayal of the police service, the way that it's dragged through the gutter by some quarters, is unforgivable. Because actually, every day, these guys and girls are out there fighting the good fight. Yes, there are different standards. It, well, I get all that, but they're still doing the same job with the same peeling principles. Yeah, and I and I really feel for them. So we've retired yeah. now. So si, you and I, we're 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 li- living the golden age. What what are we doing now, mate? Well, um, I've done three or four different things since I retired four and a half years ago. Two, courtesy of your good self and Joe. Um, one was working in Chelmsford as an ambassador, which was And you were a good ambassador, mate. Oh, bless you. Um, I enjoyed that work with some great people. Again, most were uh, retired police officers. So yeah. it was, you know, when you were walking around Chelmsford, you could spin a few yarns with newly acquired colleagues, um, great people. And they're still friends, aren't they? They are still friends yeah. and we keep in touch one way or it's another. It's just like being back in the police, actually. It was. That's right. That's right. And then more recently, um, I worked at uh, Sorda's Auction House, which was and a they loved great you. place. Well, I loved them. That's they nice loved that, you. Well, bless you. That was um, that was a really great job. 
it was fascinating. There were really nice people there. There was, um, you know, just a really classy bunch of people. The, yeah. the, the staff there, directors, and um, also the customers that bought stuff at yeah. auction. They'd come, and, and I really enjoyed meeting so many people over the months I worked there. But alas, it was uh, just a bit too far, yeah. really, so it wasn't economically viable. But that is a great shame because it was a lovely job, yeah. very, very enjoyable indeed. And your greatest love? Well, I like the countryside. I'm you a country love the boy. Countryside. I'm, I'm a country boy. Always have been, and I like uh, wildlife. I like my dogs. Um, I enjoy a bit of shooting and fishing, and um, always have. Yeah. yeah. So that's it. So I was lucky when I retired to combine that with some work at Braxted Park, a great estate really close to me. And, um, yeah, that was nice. And I still go there now. I don't work there anymore, but um, I still go there and take my dogs out three, two, times. So how did you get into – I mean, you, you, you are the quintessential English – you you are, Simon. I mean, you, you you turned up here today in your brogues and, you know, you, you, you are you're the part. Um, how did you get into your shooting? I think my dad, he, he didn't do a lot of shooting, but he's very – um, great man with animals. He worked on a farm when he was a young lad. Very good with animals. Animals come first, and rightly so. You know, his dogs that he had, um, he used to run German Shepherds in trials. Right. And the dogs came first. You know, they were fed, and, and you know, he looked after them. I don't mean by implication that we were neglected in any way. Far no, no, from no, no, Our no, parents no. Are, are great people and were fantastic parents. But, you know, he looked after animals, uh, cattle, um, pigs and so on, but they they were looked after and their appearance was impeccable. They were fed and yeah, watered. Yeah. They really were looked after very well and that left a lasting impression on me. Alas, that's not the case all the time. No. Um, but so he was an influence on me and I got um, – I went to woodwork club at school and I'd always thought that uh, forgiveness is easier to obtain them permission. <laughs> yeah. So I made uh, a ferret hutch <laughs> at Woodwork Club and then I took it home and got a ferret and they said, what on earth is that? And I said, well, that's me ferret. But it was beyond the point of no return. So um, so I used to like ferrets when I was a lad at school. And do you still keep them now? Do, oh, I do, yeah. do a bit of rabbiting and um, – uh, but you're yeah. ethical around and it, aren't you? Oh, absolutely. It's it's very, very important to me that, um, you know, these country pursuits, as some people call it, I do acknowledge and always have that others have very strong views to the contrary, which I respect, by the way. Indeed, I have some sympathy um, with certain elements. So the those who indulge and participate in country sports – um, country pursuits must do it ethically. Mm. Must do it ethically. Um, uh, the RSPB recently said that game, some gamekeepers, some gamekeepers do shoot and kill birds of prey. Yeah. Well, you know, they've thrown the gauntlet down, and some have reacted angrily. Um, whether that's right or not, I don't know, but. Um, some people only have to look at themselves and examine their own consciences to see whether that's true. Yeah. There are 
gamekeepers who certainly do not do that, who are ethical, yeah, absolutely. who are professional, who fly the flag. And when you see them at country fairs, uh, the National Gamekeepers Organisation, for example, of which I'm a member, you know, they do look the part and um, they are very professional. But same as in the police, we had some colleagues who um, were the antithesis of that. And it's the same in the countryside. There are people who, who don't uh, follow the rule book. No. And uh, those people, my personal view is um, I don't associate them with them whatsoever. No, I absolutely agree. And, and I mean, we're at a point, bear in mind we live in the country and you get you get vermin and all sorts. We don't put any poisons down, nothing, because no. at the end of the day I don't want to see the barn owl that I've got flying around here um, dead because it's eating something, ingested something that's got poison in it. And that's, you know, that's how that's how we are. Um, it's living in harmony, isn't it, around around it? It is. You... you Work your dogs. You've got seven. Yeah, yeah I've got uh, yeah Labradors, a uh, little Lurch, and a little Jack Russell. Um, but yeah, they they go out the Labradors uh, two three times a week, which they're born to do. So we pick up on shoots, um, which involves working your dogs as gun dogs. They're trained gun dogs, uh, so picking up any wounded game or dead game behind the team of guns, yeah. um, and that all goes into the food chain. Again, I, I acknowledge that some people don't like that, and I respect that, but I enjoy that because the, some of the birds inevitably are wounded, but your dogs find them, and yeah. you can put them out of their misery. And, and um, So, yeah. And I think a lot of it's lost. That if and I know around here where birds are put down, if the farmers weren't investing in stock, and I'm not saying, I mean, I've seen it on some some shoots where they've pulled out the tail feathers so the birds can't get off the ground so that the the, 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 the lesser shot has half a chance of, of fulfilling their day. But if you didn't have farmers putting the, the poults down, then I'm not sure we'd have the same number of pheasants or, or, or partridges running around and, and doing their stuff and... There's, there's got to be a balance. I, I get the ache where, where they just shoot everything. You know the rooks. The, you know, they shoot the rooks because they and the squirrels and they shoot the foxes, and the rabbits. Well, let the foxes do their work and everything else falls in, into place. I'm not talking about people that have got their own birds. I'm talking about a particular area that I know who remain nameless where they haven't got chickens, you know, or they haven't got anything that's going to get destroyed. They just go out of their way to effectively kill everything and it's beautiful to see we get them here we, we see the deer running around the field behind us yeah you know we, we've got the, the hawks that come down and land on this it's beautiful um but i know that you are um a conservationist as much as anything else but- yeah that's right and and i think there is a strong argument i would say and i'm very happy to identify with it when uh shoots um do what they do ethically and they could be examined. They could be put under a microscope. Yeah. They produce food and it's a harvest um, and uh, they manage, and that's the word, they manage the countryside and um, it's there's a balance. Yeah, there's a balance um, and, and I'm very happy to be identified with that. Um, but the others that, that sort of di- uh, transgress from what's acceptable um, and what's lawful, and then yeah. I'm afraid I don't. No, I haven't got any time. No, no. And you also do 
corporate shoots that you, you teach people to to shoot yeah i help at uh over at the fence shooting school which i enjoy very much i'll go over there a few times um, couldn't teach me though could you mate? <laughs> I, I couldn't i couldn't hit a cow's backside with yeah. a banjo <laughs> <laughs> you did all right no. but, but um but no that's enjoyable and I, I think i like to impart any uh any experience that I have, whether that's training, as I did on the child abuse team and imparting a little bit of what I know, which is not a great deal, but um, hopefully helping others. And certainly with fishing, fly fishing, shooting, and trying to get somebody who's never held a gun before to smash a clay. And when they do, the look on their face is um, is priceless. So I really do enjoy that. Yeah, and, no. and I've met lots of very, very nice people um, as a as a consequence, so yeah, that's very enjoyable. And if people wanted uh, private instruction, I mean, do you do that as well? As I, you... I could do that. Yeah, I could. I'd be well, happy we'll to set you take up on our services else. site, mate, and Thank get you, you out very there. Much lovely, George. Um, Cheers. You are very, you know, you're you're a family man, and you're absolutely passionate about everything that you do. And um, I'm really grateful for your time today, Simon. It's a pleasure. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Paul. Yeah, Thank see, you it wasn't much. what you expected, was it? No, no, no. not at all. No, it's very before enjoyable. we. Um, conclude this interview is there anything you'd like to add alter change no just to thank you for the opportunity i've enjoyed it and um and i've enjoyed listening to your previous guests Thanks, very much indeed and um the thing that makes me tick is knowing what makes other people tick consequently i mentioned briefly that uh, i'm an avid reader and i read all sorts of things generally um, non-fiction but my favourite I would say is biographies autobiographies and I love to know what makes people tick so podcasts like this um, with your previous guests and those that will follow me um, yeah keep keep up the good work and I look forward to listening to that too to hear what makes other people tick thank you very much Simon as ever mate you're an absolute gent thank you Paul you too cheers appreciate it